Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud Mindfin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the need-to-know information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield, leveraged loans, and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American Levfin market with US editor Will Cagesmith, so be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be looking at terms most susceptible to investor pushback, Ekaterra and its ESG issues, and Victoria PLC. But first, the Levfin wrap. It's coming up to mid-August in Europe, so it's understandable that there's mostly tumbleweeds rolling through the market. There are no bonds up for issuance, and Marlink, a Norway-based company, is issuing an 815 million US dollar denominated TLB to support the sale of the business to Providence Equity Partners. Next up, we have the Covenant Close-Up. And here with me today, I have co-head of European Loans Research, Christine Tognoli. Thanks for being with us today. Hi, Kat. Thanks very much. And co-head of European Loans Research, Janisha Amin. Hi, Kat. Thank you so much for being with us today. So, you both recently did a webinar for Ninefin on investor pushback. Uh, you cover a variety of topics in the presentation, which we'll cover in this pod. We looked at pushback on either side of the Atlantic last episode, and this week we're going to be looking at softcore protection and reporting as a market-driven point for pushback. So softcore is not something that was typically pushed back on last year. Interestingly, it was for the couple of months after the pandemic first started, so around March 2020, uh, people are obviously concerned if they're lending money, they want to get as much core protection as possible. So a feature that was pretty standard, 1% at six months in the European loan market, suddenly people asking for 12 months. And uh, like I said, in 2021, that was something that reverted back to the six months. But suddenly we've seen it creeping into loans we've looked at, at least term sheets we've looked at in the last couple of months. So it looks like 1% soft call at 12 months is becoming a bit of a, a norm recently. Um, obviously, it's soft call, so you know there are exceptions to it. it doesn't apply on every prepayment, but um, you know it is interesting to see. And in terms of private credit markets, that's that's obviously an interesting angle. If you had a private, if you had private credit refinancing to terminal B debt, you wouldn't get that protection because it's not like for like debt. But obviously, investors are trying to put in some protections. Um, reporting, that's not a surprising one in kind of volatile markets, difficult conditions. People want to get as much reporting as possible. So we've seen some of the time periods tightened, uh, some additional reporting, some focus on investors wanting uh, presentations, access to the company, knowing what's going on. So that's some of the stuff that we've seen recently. Sadly, your slide in the webinar dedicated to terms that don't get as much pushback is a much longer list. Which of these terms do you think are the most important ones that lenders should be pushing back on? Well, that's a good question. I mean, there, there are, like you said, there are quite a few um, items that uh, aren't subject to pushback or aren't subject to much pushback, but that we would argue uh, should be. Um, maybe an overreaching one that kind of um, trickles down throughout the covenant package is just more generally uh, documentation style. So um, most... Um, European SFAs that we see now are what we would consider high yield bonds in disguise. So the entire incurrence covenant package is um, 
based on a high yield bond covenant package, usually set out in schedules to the SFA. And um, those incurrence covenants, just by their general nature, tend to be a bit more um, loose and flexible than you would expect in a traditional lover's loan. So just from the start, uh, you expect a looser covenant package. Um, you know, where there's a, a company that has both loans and bonds issued at, at or around the same time, then there's, you know, there's some obvious justification there. You know, they want a covenant package that, that marries up. So they're really only having to keep on top of compliance with one set of covenants. Um, that, you know, you, there is some rationale. Uh, that said, most SFAs that we see that have this um, high yield and disguise uh, format do not have um, senior secure notes or senior unsecure notes in the capital structure. So it is just the term loan B and revolving debt. Uh, so, so that sort of justification of wanting a consistent covenant package falls away. Um, similarly, we see this sort of structure regardless of deal size, regardless of company size. So you might have a company with a relatively small EBITDA, you know, maybe 50, 60 million um, with a high yield style covenant package. Where, uh, where that entity would probably struggle uh, to raise debt in the capital markets in the first place. So you, know, you question the appropriateness of that sort of covenant package for, um, for a company of, of such a smaller size. Yeah, another area is uh, also begins with high, high watermarking. Um, and this is a concept uh, that essentially makes a bit of a mockery of a, of a basket. So. Typically, you'll have soft cap baskets in, in leveraged loans and high yield bonds. So a basket will be the greater of a fixed amount and then a percentage of EBITDA. High watermarking uh, kind of rides roughshod over that by saying, actually, the fixed amount isn't fixed. And as EBITDA increases, that fixed amount will increase. So it won't be whatever's in the loan agreement. It will be a much higher figure, which will be difficult for you to pretty much work out. Then if EBITDA subsequently drops, that fixed amount stays at the higher amount. So it, you know, it's very difficult when you're trying to understand or work out capacity under a loan agreement. You're looking at a basket where the fixed amount is probably or may, may not be the actual fixed amount. Um, and often when we see investor pushback, it's against basket sizes rather than concepts like high watermarking. So that's an area where there's limited pushback and you know, it really should be the subject of investor focus, especially when you have volatile markets where you're trying to work out capacity and EBITDA may well have plummeted, so you're looking at the fixed amount, and actually that fixed amount is not your ceiling, it could be something else. Yeah, exactly. I think especially in the current market, this really could come to the fore with, um, with a number of, of borrowers, especially if you know, they did well in the first year or two after the issuance. Uh, EBITDA increases, uh, therefore the fixed baskets increase as well. And now, worse markets, we're seeing EBITDA a lot of businesses really crumble. And um, those um, basket sizes are staying at the peak EBITDA level. So you have this disconnect between how a business might be performing and its actual basket capacity, which this really isn't the kind of market and that's maybe not the situation that you want to have all this additional flexibility. And next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly. This week, we're turning the tables and I will be asking Kat about a recent uh, credit that she did some ESG analysis on. So today, I am going to be talking about Unilever Tea. Um, as it was previously known, um, it's been sold to CVC for about 4.5 billion euros. And the debt financing, which is a 2.1 billion euro 
term loan um, has been pre-marketed since, I think we were talking about this pre-Easter, but definitely since May. And um, pretty much since we've been talking about it, we've been hearing that it's been delayed. Estimates have been saying that it will come back to market in September, but really we don't have anything concrete. So yeah, that's what I'll be discussing today. It's been renamed as Ecoterra and it's a tea producer. Fascinating. Okay. And uh, Kat, why is this one so interesting from an ESG perspective? Because it's been so delayed and um, because it's had a bit of trouble through the market, lots of buy-siders have said it's quite a difficult one from an ESG perspective. It's getting a lot of direct lending uh, attention apparently and um, a lot of buy-siders have suggested that it, it might be going to direct lending. So when companies do face lots of ESG challenges, where do they go if um, if CLO investors don't find them appropriate? I think it raises a, a very interesting ethical question as well, one that uh, I think ESG professionals always look into. Do we aim to invest in companies that are challenging from an ESG perspective with the aim of improving them? Or do we avoid investing altogether in the hopes that the cost of funding for these businesses will increase? And in doing so, make it harder for these types of businesses to exist. Now, I initially thought that the latter would be the more compelling option. Um, but I spoke to the executive director of the Ethical Tea Partnership, Jenny Costello, and she spoke about how much good can be done through the tea industry. You know, it's, it's a vital part of GDP in East Africa. Tea producers are in a unique and very strong position to assist their employees from a social perspective. You know, they house them, they educate them, they feed them. But if investors are kind of shirking this business off because of the ESG issues at hand, one wonders if the company will just deteriorate into its practice. So when I speak about it going to direct lending, LPC has recently reported that a sterling tranche has uh, been placed with a series of in, uh, of Asian investors. And when we talk about Asian banks, we often think of them as kind of on the lo- lowest level of caring about ESG that there is out there. Um, so those investors have obviously made it clear that they're pa- like they're happy to kind of back this business. But if they're left in, in the hands of those investors that care very little about ESG, is that what's best for ESG ultimately? It's of course a consideration that lenders don't have much involvement in the management of companies, but I think their input can impact the sponsor's priorities. No, it's, that's um, all, a lot of different points to, um, to cover off there, but this certainly speaks to um, a wider discussion that's, that's going on in, in ESG at the moment, which is, um, you know, is the most important thing just how the wider ESG concerns will, will, will affect a deal or a company, or, or should you look at it the other way around also and, you know, look at how the company is actually affecting each, each of those ESG factors? Yeah, and there certainly were a a few different ESG factors to consider across the company specifically, as well as the industry in general. Um, In 2007, uh, the Unilever-owned plantation in Kerako, Kenya, um, suffered from a a fair amount of ethnic violence following a particularly contentious election. And um, there were claimants at the time that alleged that the business put them in harm's way and uh, even stopped wages for six months following the events. So this is a very serious allegation. Um, it's The business still has a complaint filed against it with the United Nations Working Group on Business and um, Human Rights. Uh, however, Unilever has issued a response stating that they replaced 
Uh, possessions looted and dedicated $500,000 to support workers after they were affected by the crisis. Um, the company has also reiterated a ruling by a UK court that the events that occurred could not have been foreseen by Unilivity. Uh, and then uh, the company has also, when I reached out to them, just said that, you know, this is an issue for Unilever rather than Ekaterra or CBC to face. So that's the most serious one and the one that Byside is most often raised is the issue. But there's also huge problems both social and environmental with the TN industry at large um, from an environmental perspective we're talking about water availability deforestation and the direct impacts of um, climate change um, on tea yield uh, and then there's wider social issues um, surrounding gender pay which is endemic across the tea industry, discriminatory work policies, culture of sexual harassment, um, and then just low pay and hard working conditions for all tea workers. Yeah, a, a lot to pick through. Next up, we have the deep discussion, uh, where we discuss a topic a little bit more deeply. I'm here with the esteemed Chris Haffenden, editor of Ninefin. Chris, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thanks, Kat. It's good to be back on the cloud. Um, so today we're going to be talking about an interesting one, Victoria PLC. The share price has been coming under pressure for a while now, but they did have an earnings call on the 20th of July. Um, and the bonds and shares did tick up as management was very upbeat uh, for this call. Uh, but since then, uh, so last Wednesday, a short seller report landed um, and we've done a little bit of analysis on Victoria post the earnings call and after the iceberg short seller report, as far as I understand. Um, so yeah, it'd be great to understand, Chris, where do you think these problems particularly started from, maybe? Um, I suppose the... The big thing about Victoria is, and I think there's a really good sort of piece written by um, Rob Smith from the FT um, talking about it, a bit about it, though he's, he's uh, uh, focusing a lot on the, the CEO's super yacht, um, but about the fact that this is a business that's over 120 years old, it's a sort of carpet business, it's got a royal warrant, it's sort of, you know, got, you know, a deep history. But since, um, you know, the last sort of decade or so, it's been a sort of highly aggressive roll-up business which has actually been mostly funded by debt and it's actually been a sort of stock market sort of darling as well and there's always this question mark so when you have these sort of businesses that grow very very fast about whether there's actually any issues there in terms of acquisition accounting and what the sort of the real sort of underlying profitability is so the as as you said Kat there was you know quite a positive upbeat earnings on the the 20th the bonds and the, the equity rally quite sort of strongly on that and we did actually write a piece three or four days later saying we're a little bit flawed, excuse the pun, um, to the uh, the market's positive reaction to that. And we sort of felt that, um, you know, that things weren't as strong as being reported by the company. You know, the EBITDA margin was you know, significantly higher than, uh, than historically. And that was mostly because of the fact that they hadn't um, made any acquisition, that much acquisitions in the last year or so. And also there's a lot of um, adjustments that they could do under their bond covenants where they can adjust a lot of um, non-underlying items there's lots of assumptions in terms of what cost savings they can sort of strip out of these businesses that they're acquiring and therefore they can actually push boost that into the numbers and it's obviously und we're not sure whether those numbers will actually come through as they say they're going to so I think that was one of the things that we were talking about we also thought that they were being a little bit 
overconfident about the fact that they felt that the, the fact that they were in the mid to premium end of the flooring market, that they would say that there was still small ticket spend and affordable and therefore they would be able to be resilient to the sort of slowdown in the economy. And so I, th I think that was something that we sort of focused on as well, that you know, demand maybe is not as inelastic as the management suspected. And then I suppose the other thing that um, we looked at as well is just the integration of the business and how long it takes to actually to integrate these businesses and the fact that Victoria is making acquisitions at sort of five to six times multiple but sort of sees itself as sort of ten times multiple business and we, we sort of doubted that they could add that much value from a multiple perspective. So... The iceberg short seller report landed last week, midweek. What what were their major issues? Did they kind of line up with our concerns? Uh, no, I think it was um, the report was a little light. We thought in terms of detail, but one of the things they were talking about was that they identified sort of two small transactions where they claimed that these were purchases of existing subsidiaries rather than of new businesses. And what happened was that the names of the companies that were um, acquiring those businesses were effectively existing subsidiaries that they'd renamed shortly before the acquisition happened. And they're effectively saying that, you know, these weren't actual standalone transactions that were effectively, you know, the company just buying, but buying its own subsidiaries or maybe buying subsidiaries which it might have a majority ownership already and therefore they were, there was something going on. Um, there was also talking about uh, one of the Victoria managers, a, name called, a guy called Sir, Sakib Karim, uh, who've founded um, these two companies, and you know about suggesting that he was being enriched by these transactions. Um, I think there was also some some uncertainty about why Victoria didn't respond to these allegations as well. There wasn't. There's been no formal response from the company, though we did unearth a message board that was put together by a Victoria. Uh, equity investor who was actually directly asked the company about these transactions and they did respond to him and that's been posted on a um, on a site um, and also our own uh, analyst and it's a story over also looked into this a little bit as well and it looks like what's happened is that they've set up these um, dormant subsidiaries renamed them the business there were subsidiaries that didn't have any um, any any actual business actual business lines in there and they've actually just renamed them as, as acquiring vehicles so the company's actually gone to a little bit detail about the renaming of the entities and why they use those entities and they are you know this is allowable under sort of accounting rules and also the other thing that we pointed out as well is that quite often victoria when it acquires businesses the um the business managers actually become part of victoria and there's a sort of a, at least a force of four-year period where they they're assumed into the business so therefore it's nothing untoward about having you know an individual like that uh, being connected to the you know to the company so i think that was the the main sort of standouts for us was that you know at the end of the day it felt like um you know, it was a little bit light. They were also talking a little bit about their inventory and saying their inventory days were a lot higher than some of their uh, competitors. But again, we had a look into this and we felt that, you know, maybe they were using a slightly narrower comp set and some of the larger other comp companies we looked at in that space did have sort of similar inventory days. So we didn't think that that was particularly, you know, concerning. Flooring's had a bit of a tough time. I covered some target earnings um which weren't doing too too well uh je floor i think uh is in the low 90s so i guess sort of par but it's not its previous you know full-on par do you think there's an issue in the flooring market in general or is it more of an industrial space issue 
Um, I think there's a few things there. There's there's input costs. I mean, obviously it depends what whether what type of flooring you're talking about. So whether you've got issues in terms of you know things such as you know resin PVC uh, for some part types of flooring, and also you have um, you know these are quite sort of high sort of gas users, so sort of natural gas prices. You know will be an issue. I mean, Victoria has introduced a sort of gas surcharge to pass this through and they have been stockpiling gas in Italy as well to ensure some sort of production um, if you have a situation where you have like another big gas price spike that we've had recently and also um, they have a lot of manufacturing facilities in Turkey which isn't subject to uh, the sort of sanctions in Russia and obviously Turkey's a little bit more leaning towards Russia so they feel there wouldn't be gas rationing in Turkey so that's also a potential another positive. Um, I suppose the other thing to bear in mind as well is they have actually made a relatively large acquisition at the turn of the year, which was the uh, the rugs business from Balta, which is another high yield business, and they're claiming that that's going to make um, you know significant savings in terms of annual cost savings for that merger. But again, that's you know to be determined. So I suppose for us, it's really just thinking about what is the underlying organic growth of this business and how much of this is just continuing to be fueled by acquisitions, and just really trying to think about you know what the sort of you know the real steady state of the business will be i think the other things that to mention are the sort of leverage does look low but they still have a fair amount of room under their covenants just based on how things are calculated but we feel that if you look at the sort of leverage of the business you have to really take into account other things which are going on so you have about 225 million of preferred equity which has actually been put in place by Koch, part of that business called Koch equity development so that's that, in theory, um, has to be repaid. They've been talking a lot about repaying that in uh, 2025 and 2026. And then the company's also been talking about using cash to buy back its shares, which I think are too cheap. So there is a sort of concern if you're a bondholder that you know maybe leverage is high and you think. I mean, we think the leverage, rather than being around about two and a half times, if you include the preferred equity and our adjustments to EBITDA in terms of what we think is realistic rather than the company's optimistic views in terms of that acquisition accounting we think that the leverage is probably nearer sort of five 5.4 times so that's quite a significant sort of you know pick up um that said you know looking at where the bonds are trading the bonds are sort of trading in the mid to high 70s we don't we think that's sort of fairly valued just based on our own analysis i mean we have put a sort of quite detailed sort of piece out on that so if anyone wants to look into that in more detail then you know, obviously go through on that uh, we also understand that you know there has been quite a lot of journalists um, interested in this business not standing the fact that the sort of the, the Jeff Wild and the sort of former investment banker uh, who's now the exec chairman of this company I mean he owns a 65 million pounds 200 foot super yacht which Rob Smith goes into a lot of detail about and there's sort of question marks about you know this sort of uh, you know, the, 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 the amount, of, amount of sort of acquisitions, just the sort of the way this company is being run, you know, is there something behind it or not? And I think there's, you know, it is, there's quite a lot of journalist activity around that. And so there's, there's possibilities that other stories might emerge you know, further down the line. And that's all we have time for this week. And if you do want to read more about some of these situations, head to ninefin.com slash insights where you can see some of our content in front of the paywall or you can drop us an email at team at ninefin.com we're always keen to hear your suggestions for topic ideas your comments on our discussions and your feedback on the platform 
If you like this podcast, don't forget to like and share it. Tune in for the US edition next week. I'll be back the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.